0: Hello, and welcome to The Cupid Couch, the podcast about love, sex, and relationships, both present and past. My name is Genevieve Gaunt, the creator and host, and you can find visual content to go along with the show on the Instagram, at The Cupid Couch. And if you're new, I'd go back and start with episode one. Welcome. This episode is about toxic love, from gaslighting to ghosting, narcissists to negging, and the science behind why we're attracted to the heartbreakers. My guests tell me about their experiences of toxic relationships and the red flags they wish they'd spotted earlier, and then I look into some of the history of toxic love, the emotional vampires from literature and life. Our history, culture, books, plays, films, biographies are full of them, whether in art or life. Medea and Jason, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, Rambeau and Verlaine, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, and more recently, FKA Twigs and Shia LaBeouf, were simultaneously repulsed, angered and enthralled by toxic love stories. So to start unravelling this tricky theme is my first guest, the actor and activist, Rose McGowan. She opens up to me about a toxic relationship she was in and the red flags to watch out for so that you can avoid entrapment. Just before I introduce Rose, I want to foreground this episode with the idea that the gothic figure of the vampire is a good metaphor for toxic lovers and narcissists. Often alluring, dangerous and sexual, they suck energy out of their loved ones just as a vampire sucks blood. And the vampire figure we know now was modelled on a real man. That man Was Lord Byron. In 1816, Lord Byron's doctor and travelling companion, Polidori, wrote a short novel called The Vampire, and Polidori's urbane vampire was based on Lord Byron. And 70 years later, Bram Stoker would draw his Count Dracula out of that same aristocratic mould, and the dazzling Lord Byron was indeed vampiric. He had an affair and a child with a young woman called Claire Claremont, who in her memoir described him as, quote, a human tiger, slaking his thirst for inflicting pain upon defenceless women. And with the human vampire idea in mind, I'd like to introduce my first guest, Rose McGowan. A Hollywood actor and activist, Rose spearheaded the Me Too movement in 2017, Having grown up and escaped a cult called the Children of God, she is well attuned to the dangers of controlling forces,
1: whether societal
0: or amorous. Here's Rose.
1: Yes, one of the things I did that was quite stupid was I was on an airplane and I there was a magazine in the seat back and I was bored and so I took some love quiz on there. And it was like, what do you want in a partner? I'm sure it said man, but... I realized after taking the quiz, I was like, oh, I want myself. Cool. Red flag. No, just kidding. But what I realized after doing that, because that night upon landing, I met somebody that was all of those things. And what I realized five and a half years later after breaking up with him was that you should also make a list of what you don't want. And that's equally if not more important. I think it's more important, actually. It's pretty easy to think of what we do want, but what we don't want—it it involves us. It involves our agency, you know, and and our and what what's important to us. You know, this person was very controlling. Anything controlling, anything that's about how you dress. I remember deep into the relationship. I mean, just as an example, I was wearing a roll neck, and I took it off and. He said, what kind of message are you trying to send with that bra? And I thought, I'm wearing a roll-neck sweater. What are you What are you talking about? And I had to defend my bra choice. You know, just crazy stuff that when you're in a relationship where you're constantly having to defend yourself for who you are, what you do, what you think, what you say, what you wear, you know, fuck off. Like, absolutely not. That's that... I got so lost in that relationship, because I was, I didn't realize what was going on, the gaslighting, and I was constantly trying to make a case for myself, as if I was on trial all the time, and then one day, I was like, why am I on trial, like, what, this is this is absurd, you know, and it took me a while to get the strength enough to leave, and I think, Maybe everybody has to go through that kind of relationship once. I hope not. But if they do, then... And I hope that it's not a pattern, that it's not repeated. I really pretty much think jealousy, like, who are you looking at? What are you doing? Anything like that is a huge red flag. Run. And he also said when I was first going out with him, in a really condescending way, I accept you just as you are. But it was really with a, like, oh, you, you're you so awful, but I'm here to accept you just as you are. I'm the bigger person because I'm accepting you. And at the very end of our relationship, I was like, hey, guess what? I don't accept you. And that was, like, really telling. And I was speaking to some woman who was in a very similar relationship to me at the time, and she had been in it for nine years. And she's like, don't worry, you'll get where I am too. And I thought, oh, dear God, no, I won't. And that's what spurred me to get out. But it was... It was also like convoluted because it was involved with um, work, and you know he was a director, and I worked for him, and it was like just turned into this whole like kind of clusterfuck. Can I curse? Okay, good. And it just it got so warped. And then when you're playing a character and being abused, and then you go back into your regular life and you're being abused, you start. I just lost myself. I would say anytime you feel like you've lost yourself from yourself. It's, you know, if that alarm bell is going off in your head, wake up and listen to it, because it took me a long time. How did you know that you had lost yourself? Did it take friends and family,
0: or did you just find it within yourself?
1: No, he pretty well isolated me from my friends and family. And that was the one thing. The first year we were going out, it was was in secret. And so none of my friends or family could know. And it was just a media thing. We didn't want any attention. And, And so I think his bad behavior, things that, if I had been going out with my friends saying, this is my new boyfriend, you know, blah, 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 they would be like, "Uh, this is, there's something wrong with this person. But I was dealing with all the red flags on my own, having never really dealt with that set of red flags before. And what was not normal became totally normal. And so it was just like brainwashing, really. I mean, I think you can be in a cult of two, you know? Any
0: other red flags in other relationships? Sometimes they're things that at the, at the beginning you think, oh, that's great, and then mm-hmm. you realise it's actually like a hidden red flag.
1: Just things like if the person's going to order for you or if the person is, you know, oh, are you going to wear that? Or, um, you know, anything that's kind of a critique of you that has that makes you flinch a little bit. You know, you shouldn't be flinching with people. Not at all. When Rose's ex said... I accept
0: you. What she described was a good example of negging, which is a form of emotional manipulation where someone makes deliberate backhanded compliments to undermine your confidence, which then ironically causes you to seek your manipulator's approval. And the complicated thing is that we actually thrive off of this kind of emotional rollercoastering. Dr. Helen Fisher, an American biological anthropologist and expert on romantic love, coined the phrase frustration-attraction, which is where experiencing obstacles in a romantic relationship actually heightens our feelings of love rather than hindering them. The scientific chemical reason for this is that the brain in love lights up like it's experiencing a cocaine high. The brain is flooded with neurotransmitters such as dopamine and oxytocin, which mimic the feeling of amphetamines. So, toxic partners and narcissists want you to be addicted to the highs and the lows of their feed and withdraw patterns. The highs, such as love bombing in the early stages, such as the showering of attention and gifts and compliments. And then the lows, such as the cruel withdrawals, negging. And put downs. So every pop song that told us that love is a drug was really backed up by science. It's actually said perfectly in Britney's song Toxic, with the taste of a poison paradise. I'm addicted to you. Don't you know that you're toxic? And Britney's lyrics are echoed by one of the lovers of Lucian Freud, a woman called Jaquetta Elliott, with whom he had a violent affair. She said, quote, The whole thing was breakups and makeups. I was terribly in love with him, completely hooked, a dreadful drug, and couldn't get off it, and I tried, and I tried. Another tool of emotional manipulation that toxic partners use, that Rose mentioned, is gaslighting. It comes from the 1938 English play Gaslight. It's a form of psychological abuse where you manipulate someone by psychological means into doubting their own sanity. I think the play makes an important statement because it's set in a wealthy household and abuse happens behind all kinds of closed doors. In that same vein, I think it's important to note that men are victims of toxic relationships too. This idea that men are both victims of toxic masculinity and perpetrators of it is a paradox that Rose explored further.
1: Here she is again. The root of it is like, I think first of all a lot of men get molested more than we know and I think a lot of them have kind of a rage and then I think a lot of them also have a rage about being a man like here's what you can do here's the box you're stuck in and they don't know how to break out of it so they can take it out on other people I'm not talking about the true sociopaths because that hits you in any gender
0: you mean toxic masculinity
1: yeah, I mean toxic masculinity is an idea, but I think it's like a I think it's like a straight jacket a lot of men wear and they're very uncomfortable in it. You know, I mean the highest suicide rate is 40-year-old white males. I think there's a reason for that. I think around the, that age they get that like Peggy Lee song is that all there is and they freak the fuck out because they they've gone so long in a job that they don't love but because they've been handed this idea of what they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to provide and what they're supposed to not feel and and what they're allowed to feel and be. And then my heart breaks for a lot of men. Actually, I think they get stolen really, really young. Women get fucked with heavy, but at least it seems we have a bit more connection to ourselves.
0: Is there a point in your life, looking back, where you think that maybe can you can you see how you got to where you are now,
1: and the way that you feel about? Yeah, relationships? I think that that director relationship really just killed a part of me. It just just decimated it, and I, I think, and, and I don't ever want to be out of control in love with anybody ever again ever because you fell so hard because i fell so hard and because it was so damaging and so abusive i just i can't do that it's just not worth it i don't care i don't care enough to it's not worth it to me i'm not somebody that's gonna go throw myself off a cliff because i'm in love with somebody i don't give a shit i'd rather just go have some tea and do a crossword what about love songs what are your favorite love songs well little sparrow isn't Per se, a love song, it's more of a warning to women song over what, you know, can be done to you and how you can get hurt, but I love Little Sparrow. It's like, Little Sparrow, Little Sparrow, flies so high, feels no pain. It's such a beautiful song. It makes the hairs on my arms stand up.
0: A warning song to women. My next guest has her own warning signs to flag for women who find themselves in toxic relationships. She is the Australian author Kathy Lett, writer of 20 books, 14 of which are comic fiction, and her latest book, HRT, Husband Replacement Therapy, is soon to be published in the UK. Kathy and I spoke in early 2021, still during the pandemic, so we recorded our interview remotely. So without further ado, here is Kathy Lett on toxic relationships, sexism, and the patriarchy.
2: I had very toxic relationships as a teenager because I was part of a surfy gang in Australia. And the boys I grew up with disproved the theory of evolution. They were kind of evolving into apes. I mean, it would have looked much more natural if they squatted on their haunches and groomed each other's back hair for nits. And they were really, really sexist. I mean, this is, This has is, is, is an example of how sexist they were. They used to get us to cut their names out in paper, sticky tape them to our stomachs, then sunbake so we get a tan tattoo in the shape of their name. So if ever I get cancer, I'll have this melanoma called Bruce. I'll have like a Bruce-ectomy to get rid of it. And, you know, they were also the sort of guys who thought sex drive meant doing it in the car. I mean, every Australian woman... I know, loss of virginity in a car. But it took me a while to work out why men like to have sex in the car. And then I saw that sign on the rear vision mirror that says, objects in this mirror may appear larger than they are. I'm like, ah, right, now that makes sense. But the serious side of all that is, is a feminist point, that the double standards when it comes to sexuality are appalling and nothing's changed. It's 100 years since Emily Panker's tied herself to the railings, you know, And a man who's sexually active is still um, a love god, a stud muffin, a spunk rat, a Romeo, Lothario. Um, A woman with the same sexual appetites is still a slut, a tart, a tramp, a mole. You know, men always expect you to be so virginal. You know, We know that whenever you ask men and women about how many partners they've had, men always say they've had more and women always say they've had less than they've had. So, you know, it's like when the guy expects you to be so He's like, oh, dying, dying, am I the first man to make love to you? To which the woman replies, of course, I don't know why you men
0: keep asking me the same silly question. I then asked Cathy the question, when it comes to psychological abuse in relationships, do men do it more? And she said... Oh, you know, it's a patriarchal society,
2: so of course they do. You know, we're, and we're only talking, we're talking about the West. I mean, you can imagine what it's like for women in the developing world who have really, who are totally second-class citizens a lot of the time. But I think what, what I see, what I've seen in toxic relationships is when the man, the red flags are when he starts, you know, just, just undermining her confidence and cutting her off from her friends. And, you know, it's very gradual. It's the gaslighting we all know about. But that's where you have to put your foot down very early on that. You've got to say, you know, I'm not your secretary. Just you can't dictate to me because it's insidious and it creeps up on you slowly and then women become dependent and they think they're not worth better treatment so and that's also the time that your girlfriends and you and the sister who has to rally around and do a bit of an intervention and convince her that she hasn't fallen in love she's stepped in and it's time to kind of wipe him off her shoes um and I know that breaking up is like a romantic 9 one it's 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 terrifying and horrifying and totally debilitating when you're going through it but you know he's you've got to think of him like toxic waste and just dump him my sandy toxic my very good friend you know we say she has a great expression where she says the wagon circle where we look out for each other if any any of our girlfriends are ever in a in a in any any danger or if they're being attacked in any way we the wagon circle and that's what we tend to do and that's the true sisterhood my whole thing is that women are each other's human wonder bras, uplifting supportive and making each other look bigger and better so you know you just got to make sure you've got some good strong wonder brands in your life so that if ever you do find yourself veering down a down a dodgy path <laughs> they can be your psychological sat nav and get you get you get you the hell out of dodge
0: So both Rose and Kathy have advised to get out of bad or toxic relationships and I have found very similar advice in a poem from the 1570s written under the reign of Elizabeth I. It's by a woman called Isabella Whitney and I can't believe when I read this out that these words were penned about 450 years ago and they go like this. But many women foolishly like me and others more do such a fixed fancy set on those which least deserve, that long it is ere wit we get away from them to swerve. Victims of toxic relationships are often asked that question, why did it take you so long to leave, or away from them to swerve? Well, this issue of what makes people stay is brought up by my next guest story. This is Sam, he's in his late twenties, and his voice has been altered... To protect his identity, Here's Sam.
3: So the last relationship I was in was truly bonkers. It was, it was mental. Um, it was very toxic, uh, super dark, and it was something which I, I kind of expected. I knew what I was going into in a way, because I was aware of the trauma that she had gone through as a child. I mean, her. Her father murdered her mother when she was four years old. So knowing that I was prepared for a lot and it always came down to like an, an understanding, you know, no matter how she, she acted, it was all very easy to sort of work out. And I, I did my best to sort of be as patient as I could and to accept all kinds of really strange behaviours and uh, see what would happen if I just gave some someone nothing but goodness despite anything and um, maybe try and show her a different way of well loving maybe just trying to show her love it came to be pretty obvious in the end that she fundamentally didn't believe in it as a concept because her example of it that she was shown was Obviously, that it wasn't love. I mean, but that was you know her mother and father. I mean, that's that's where you get that's where you get everything from. What? Our example was just uh, awful and evil, violent. What happened? Her mother had an affair, and in turn, her father drowned her in a bath.
0: And how, how did that dynamic affect her attitude towards love and your relationship?
3: I felt like. She had a, a very warped kind of relationship with men where she needed sexual attention from them. She always needed, I felt like she always needed to be playing the room, always keeping the attention of men, but in a way where she's playing with them and sort of gaining power over them using her sexuality and performative kind of presence. I feel like she does, she had no respect no actual real respect for men two weeks into us going out she decided well she told me that she was going to start stripping i was super patient about it i thought okay all right okay uh, she made it seem like she she had to for the money but then it eventually became clear that it wasn't really for the money it turns out she had a trust fund and she was i mean she definitely had enough money without having to lift a finger exercising power over men feeling validated herself because i know that she had a you know issues with her own sort of like self image and she wanted to be a sexy kind of gypsy woman and yeah she was she was often she was offered yeah she was, she was she was offered opportunities to go and sleep with clients a lot which i'm sure she did actually i'm sure she did i mean i'm sure she didn't take up every offer but uh no she did i could i could smell it on her sometimes when she'd come back from a shift and i could just smell the smell of something that was not non contact You know, lap dancing for sure.
0: But I also remember that you said that she would say things like she was offered to go home with some guys and she said no.
3: Yeah, yeah. She was. There was a group of German bankers who asked, yeah, they offered her, they offered like a couple of thousand, a few thousand pounds, maybe, yeah, I think it was two grand, yeah, they offered her to come back with the four of them and to have some fun together. And she said that she was utterly repulsed by them and that um, she declined. But then she also spoke about someone else she met that night who was um, an older man who was a very sort of gentle soul, apparently, who was there talking about his relationship problems to her or whatever. And she said if it had been him who'd asked her, then she didn't know what she would have done. These were all the kinds of things that she would sort of tell me to maybe keep me on my toes and in a state of desperation.
4: Did that
0: lead to like interesting sex between the two of you when she came back? Was it like a-
3: That was probably what she desired or probably what she was trying to sort of engineer, but it completely killed it. I mean, or it just stopped it from ever ever flourishing. The weird thing about that whole thing was, from the off, from the very beginning, the first time we slept together, my body rejected her. It's not like we, I mean, you know, my friends thought that me sort of being in this, probably because it was justified by some wild sex with this this wild sort of, you know, like strange, interesting creature who, yeah, they all thought that. But it wasn't true. I mean, I was, I I even, I lied to her. I told her that I was having, I I told her I was having um, sort of like problems of like reigniting my sexuality and saying that I was, Sort of, oh, I've never, you know, I've, I've, it's just a bit of erectile dysfunction. I, it wasn't. My body was just so unaccepting of her, where I really, you know, I didn't enjoy, I probably only enjoyed our sex maybe once or twice. It was honestly, I just don't know why I put myself through it, but it was, a to- it was an act of total self sacrifice. Just trying to sort of like see what I can, see how I can help this woman, but also see whether, you know, she can sort of like become someone who I can vibe with. In the end, there's only so much you. I mean, there's only so much you could do for someone. And if they're unwilling to help themselves, or if they aren't unable aren't to then just sort of like do their side of things, and maybe just sort of have some respect for that person, I was being a really solid guy for her. And whilst having you know like fun, it's like I'm not a straight. I'm not like a. I'm not. I'm no square. So many pushings. You know, she would push and push and push my boundaries, and each time she would reset it and just see what I could take without running away from her. But there were some final straws towards the end. She was constantly sort of flirting around that and actually sometimes really pushing it. In the end, I mean, just sort of like fun- fundamentally, just having no respect for me whatsoever. To understand that people are insecure, but it was just any room we, that we went to, into, whether it were in a restaurant, at a bar or anything, it's like she wasn't ever truly present. She was always looking over my shoulder, always looking elsewhere sometimes turning 180 to sort of sit there and just work the room. She was getting a grill fitted one time and she was trying it on just for fit. It takes a few seconds. And then she started sort of, she was all bent over 90 degrees, looking in this mirror. And she started sort of like doing this kind of sexy sort of sway, checking herself out. But then I look over, and I can see in the mirror the angle of her eyes. She's not looking at the tooth. She's looking over her other shoulder towards this French guy who's doing his best to sort of be respectful of me and her in that situation, whilst also very aware of this woman shaking her butt and uh, waiting to see his, his gaze.
0: So how, how did it finally end? How long did it last? Six months?
3: But it was only four months. It's crazy, that. Finally ended at a music festival up in the mountains. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, that was all I could take. Really, that you know, her trying to get with my mate in front of me and speaking in a a really poorly executed secret language. With him giving it away, with his being on all fours, literally drooling with really uh, wide, lascivious lascivious eyes. I know he, I know he was was, taking drugs, but I mean, I couldn't believe it. I felt embarrassed, kind of distraught. I felt like I was in a filthy environment. I mean, I hope she grows out of it. I hope she realises that it's such a a lonely existence.
0: According to Sam, his ex used sex as a weapon of jealousy, which is something the 17th century Earl of Rochester seemed to wholeheartedly approve of when he said, jealousy is love's thermometer. And sex being used as a weapon of jealousy, like when Sam's ex bent over in the mirror and flirted with strangers, reminded me so much of this poem by Charles Bukowski. It's called Sex Pot," and it goes like this. You know, she said, you were at the bar, so you didn't see, but I danced with this guy. We danced and we danced close, but I didn't go home with him because he knew I was with you. Thanks a bunch, I said. She was always thinking of sex. She carried it around with her like something in a paper bag. Such energy. She never forgot. She stared at every man available in morning cafes over bacon and eggs, or later, over a noon sandwich or a steak dinner. I've modeled myself after Marilyn Monroe, she told me. She's always running off to some local disco to dance with a baboon, a friend once told me. I'm amazed that you've stood for it as long as you have. She'd vanish at racetracks, then come back and say, Three men offered to buy me a drink. Or I'd lose her in the parking lot, and I'd look up and she'd be walking along with a strange man. Well, he came from this direction and I came from that, and we kind of walked together. I didn't want to hurt his feelings." She said that I was a very jealous man. One day, she just fell down inside of her sexual organs and vanished. It was like an alarm clock dropping into the Grand Canyon. It banged and rattled and rang and rang, but I could no longer see or hear it. I'm feeling much better now. I've taken up tap dancing. And I wear a black felt hat pulled down low over my right eye. Well, in contrast to The Sexpot and The Earl of Rochester, a 1930 disciple of Freud called Erwin Wexberg suggested the opposite regarding jealousy. In their 1931 book, The Psychology of Sex, he wrote, Torture your lover with jealousy and you antagonize him and kill his love instead of making it stronger. And we should want to make relationships stronger and nurture our partners. But can you fix someone? That's a question that Sam's story raised. And if you see yourself as the fixer, does that make you somehow complicit? This idea that both parties can be complicit somehow in a toxic relationship is a troubling area that my next guest raises. This is Lucinda who talked to me about a bad relationship she found herself being sucked into.
4: Basically, I think a couple, it was a couple of years ago, I was studying and there was a man who came into my life and was very just present and there and, and would come up to me and ask to hang out with me and want to spend time with me. And I was always a bit reluctant. I was like, mm, no, no, like I'm busy doing my thing, not really interested but he kept persisting and um basically you know kept asking let's hang out but he kind of started using little guilt trips like oh if i don't see you this weekend you know i'm gonna be- i'm gonna have to smoke joy i'm gonna have to do this and i was like oh okay um right so oh uh, so you need someone to hang out with and because i was quite lonely and i was in london for the first time i was like right a new friend you know he's going to be fine so I start hanging out with someone that is very toxic and he starts to use things to kind of put down my personality. But at the time I, I didn't realize what was going on. And I think from the outside in, people were like, what are you doing? Like, you shouldn't be with this guy. I don't think he's good for you. And I'm like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. He's like, he's, lo- he's just going through some shit. Kind oh, of, you know, it's, it's all chill but I don't think I was strong enough to see what he was doing to me and the negging and the gaslighting and the things that happen through being with someone on your own. And it's, this is one of these things I think it's quite difficult to talk about because I think people feel a lot of shame when it comes to toxic experiences and they don't want to talk about it because they still probably feel that they are at fault for something that wasn't their fault at all. So we kind of fell into this dark little circle It got to the point where he was following me, waiting for me outside my classroom, sending me weird text messages, calling me at the middle of the night, saying he needs me, like all these things, and I became his kind of person to help him. But there was no way that I was at all capable of fixing someone that needed help. When we think that we need to fix someone, the love's never gonna be real. You can never change anyone they will always be what they're going to be unless until they start to get help. And I think a lot of women and men probably try to fix people in relationships, which then it's just not your place to, um, yeah, you can grow together and learn about your faults and kind of grow from that. And that can explode into who knows what, maybe something incredible babies, marriage, all the things that people want. Um, but yeah, he, yeah, it, it got to the point where he, he, Picked apart my personality to the point of making me feel insane. And I can't solely point the gun at him and say, he did this to me, because I think it it can go both ways. I was probably in need of this, in need of being with someone that would do this to me, if that makes any sense. Like Ophelia or like these characters that we see through Shakespearean classics and Greek mythology of the woman, the woman going mad for love, to the point of losing her own self to be with someone which can be beautiful, but also very destructive. I, I lost my smile, I lost my humour, I lost my sexual freedom, my liberation, as, like I was quite fun and like, he's really hot, he's great. And he just used all these little things against me to the point of feeling like I was absolutely nothing. Luckily it ended and I got out of it. And it's taken me a couple years to like process what went on because I didn't really understand it at the time. And I guess the thing with negging, because people do it quite naturally, I think men do it, women do it, in a way of like, oh yeah, this person's obsessed with me, or like, oh, you know, you do this thing, why do you do that? And just like putting it like, it's not real love, I think with people do that to you. I think we, as women over time, tend to ignore our instinct. And it's hard not to but trust that gut the gut speaks louder than anything else trust it and don't ignore it because i had gut instinct there were red flags all over the shop all over the shop uh and and just the way you feel guilty about something and then you feel mad about something else but trust the voice in your head that says leave like this is not right and and have the strength to do that i think um, and this is where it's, it's true. I think he comes from a, a family that, uh, of, of abandonment and, um, can't, has no idea how to love. To, he's a narcissist. To put it blatantly, it's narcissism.
0: Did you go to kind of some kind of CBT or, or therapy after this? Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it, and it's going to, it takes time, I think, um. It's like what Jermaine Greer talks about. Um, there's, there's an article where she basically says that, you know, emotionally abusive relationships that happen under a roof in a house are what need to be spoken about more of rather than someone being abused on the street or in a park, or, which is still just as bad. There are horrible people out there. But what happens under a roof, no one knows what really goes on. And I ran into him a couple months ago. And it was the most bizarre thing because it was where we'd always run into each other. I ran into him and I was like, I literally was drinking this watermelon juice. <laughs> and he walked, and I literally just spat it out onto the desk. I just went, and he's like, oh, oh, hi. Um, oh, yeah, so, Oh, yeah, it's so weird. I've just been thinking about you. Um, and I was like, oh, really? Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so how have you been? You good? Yep. Knowing that where I was two years ago and how much I've grown since then, I could view it from a completely different lens. I just looked at him and I went, whoa, I'm no longer in your f- bubble of turmoil, literally. Like, but I could act, I, 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 I like held his hand because I know he's been through, I've heard, you know, been through some things and I just said, like, I hope you're okay. If you ever need to go to group therapy, here's my number, because that's what you need. Quick as he wanted, he was like, oh, you know, I need to see a familiar face. And I was like, I'm never I'm never catching up with you for a drink or anything but if you need someone to take you to therapy I will take you to therapy.
0: Lucinda mentioned narcissism and if you google NPD narcissistic personality disorder the following traits come up that again draw striking parallels with the vampire archetype. 1. lack of empathy for others, 2. an inflated sense of importance, 3. a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, 4 perpetually troubled relationships. Lucinda said that her ex had a tragic backstory. This is important because that helps us to understand abusers, but I'm not sure it completely exonerates them. A good example of this is someone that Lucinda mentioned, which is Hamlet and Ophelia. Shakespeare implies that Ophelia and Hamlet have had premarital sex. So after Ophelia is deflowered, Hamlet goes on to insult her and scorn her and abandon her, and she kills herself. We understand Hamlet's misogynistic rage against Ophelia because of his mother, but perhaps we should see that our tragic hero is also a bit of a toxic hero. Is it scandalous to suggest that Hamlet is an immature narcissist who uses his own personal tragedy, however awful, as carte blanche to insult, discard and murder whomsoever he pleases throughout the play. Lucinda made me realise that characters like Hamlet and men like Lord Byron have instilled in us the archetype of the bad boy. Lord Byron's erstwhile lover, Lady Caroline Lamb, famously called him mad, bad and dangerous to know. But the reality of living with Lord Byron behind closed doors, like with any narcissist or toxic person, is no picnic. Lord Byron, bulimic himself found the sight of women eating disgusting. And when his wife, Annabella Milbank, was pregnant, the servants, terrified of his mood swings, made sure she was never alone with him. And when she was giving birth, he made gunshot noises by smashing off the tops of soda bottles. And shortly after, when they separated, he had an illegitimate daughter with the woman mentioned earlier, Claire Claremont. He then stole away the little girl, like some sick custody battle, then dumped her in a convent where she died of typhus, age five. But of course, toxic relationships aren't just applicable to heterosexual couples. Oh no. Take the notorious pair of late 19th century gay lovers, the poets Rambeau and Verlain. They met in 1871 when Rambeau was 17 and Verlain 27. Both were brilliant but volatile forces. Verlain was married to a woman he choked and regularly beat up, but Rambo was equally violent. He also rarely washed, left turds under one friend's pillow, and put sulfuric acid in the drink of another. Not to mention that during a game, Rambo hacked at Verlain's wrists with a penknife, and on another occasion stabbed him in the thigh. But despite all that, Verlain was still madly in love. Their tempestuous relationship climaxed in 1873 when, after a reunion that went badly, Verlaine fired two shots at Rambeau, one of them wounding him in the left wrist. Speaking of guns, Lucinda used the gun as a metaphor for being complicit in a toxic relationship when she said, I can't solely point the gun at him. I was probably in need of being with someone who would do this to me. This idea of it taking two to tango in a relationship is explored by my next guest, but in a slightly different way. What if you yourself were accused of being toxic? You don't tend to get the people being accused of being toxic in the hot seat. Well, my next guest was in exactly that position. This is Rob, 30, who spoke to me remotely about how after six years in a relationship with a woman, his world fell apart when he was accused of being a toxic controlling male so does it always take two to tango and in this story who's the guilty party will we ever know here's rob
5: actually i would describe my relationship as having not been toxic in any way up until the end which i think is the key point i i would focus on when thinking about the subject um so i was with my partner for six plus years uh, i think we both would have described it as a very happy six plus years. You don't really stay with someone for that long if, if they're not very happy years. And we never really had any issues. We were best friends and spent all of our time together. Uh, I think it's fair to say we're madly in love and fully intended to spend the rest of our lives together. To suddenly being labeled um, a narcissist and extremely controlling um, and just was so utterly traumatized by the accusation. I've never felt so horribly ashamed or saddened by anything in my life. It's like um, a family member or a best friend suddenly turning around to you and explaining to you that actually, you know, this whole time I've said that I've loved you and it's been the happiest experience of my life and I want to spend the rest of it. Actually, you've been a torturous monster and I, I've despised you the entire time. I just didn't quite have the nerve to tell you until now. Um, the toxicity emerged really only at the end when it became apparent that our relationship was ending uh, and was ending because... Now, with hindsight, she had essentially started a relationship with someone else behind my back. At the time, I was quite convinced that, yes, I must have been this emotionally abusive, manipulative, controlling monster, because why else would my partner and best friend leave me and did my best to try and understand how and why I had been uh, all those things and how I could resolve it because I couldn't possibly live my life continuing to be this controlling bastard. Um, but actually, prior to those last three weeks, at the very most, I don't think there was any other mention or um, discussion of any such issues. It was always quite the opposite. Actually, there was always just this perpetual state of bliss and friendliness and camaraderie.
0: Someone, someone listening might question: Well, if guys were so happy together for you know just under six years, is the reason that she cheated on you and acted out? Because she was unhappy, and if she was unhappy, is that because you know relationships quite naturally deteriorate, or do you think it was something to do with your behaviour?
5: Um, I think it's because relationships quite naturally deteriorate. Actually, I think the cause—not <coughs> to change the subject—the cause of the the breakup was that she'd gone through quite a traumatic experience towards the end.
0: So you, th- uh, so this traumatic experience that she went through had nothing to do with you.
5: No, no, no. She she lost her parent and sort of went a bit off the rails. The, 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 the more significant cause is I think a sense of guilt. So this my partner was a I think a very good kind person. Um, I think the sense of guilt and shame and regret about breaking up in the way that she did was so severe that almost trying to comfort herself or or, or justify her own actions um, was the real cause of of throwing about and banding these really quite abusive and aggressive allegations of, of abuse.
0: And so do you think that her blaming you was just a way of assuaging her own guilt in ending a relationship so suddenly?
5: Yeah, I think so. And I actually know so because we are quite good friends now. <laughs> and several years after the relationship ended, we began to speak a little more candidly and, um, she was much more honest and open by that point and explained that she never really was happy with how things ended, never really wanted things to end that way and felt terrible about how it had ended, um, but also felt, I think, quite bad about the uh, the way in which she had portrayed me. Um, this term sort of black PR campaign was used to try and portray you in an extremely negative light um, as a way of justifying to not just yourself, but all your friends as to why you've had to take this path. And I think the relevance to this conversation is that the most obvious way of defaming someone in a relationship that is entirely private and that no one could possibly know anything about whatsoever other than the two people within it is to accuse the other party of being controlling, manipulative, abusive, being a narcissist, all these sort of off-the-shelf terms that are readily available on Google or from friends. If you're ever seeking an explanation as to why things haven't worked out, it's very easy just to to chuck them out there. And um, once they're thrown out there, it's very difficult to take them back, especially in the eyes of those other individuals that have no other insight or knowledge of, of the very private relationship.
0: How did you unpack that after your relationship ended?
5: Um, I was utterly determined to try and resolve these issues. So I actually immediately <laughs> and rather embarrassingly went to see a relationship therapist on my own, which is the first of them, I think. Um, so I used to go... and See a relationship therapist as one party without the other half of the relationship, which had actually already ended. Something like three or four times a week at one stage, and I would just try to get them to explain to me why uh, I was such a controlling. If you know, the person had been so oblivious and unaware of it, the conversations generally seemed to hit a dead end. It was, I think, something that proved the point. You can only really resolve something that's as relationship dependent as being a controlling individual, if the other half of the relationship is there, and equally the experience I don't think can can emerge unless the other half of the relationship is in some way, perhaps complicit is too strong a word, but in some way uh, able to facilitate it. So if, you know, if throughout those six years there really had been an experience of controlling abusive behavior just never been mentioned, you could argue that that, that perhaps is the problem. Um, but I think, my experience of it was mostly that it's just a very simple, straightforward way of immediately defaming the person that otherwise would look like the innocent party if things haven't gone the way that you would like others to think that, think it had gone.
0: And I mean, did you learn anything about yourself or realize that you've done anything wrong after going through therapy?
5: But it's very easy to be led to feel that you're somehow fundamentally flawed. (laughs) Um, It's very, I suppose it's very easy to accuse someone of having a fundamental personality flaw, versus actually talking it through with them or or trying to work out what the issue is. You know, the accusation that someone is fundamentally psychologically a bad person when it comes to relationships is a very severe and significant accusation. Um, But it seems that it's become quite commonplace and easy to throw about and easy to bandy about without much justification or evidence required in fact the evidence is impossible to attain because of course the relationship is entirely private and actually if you replace the therapist with a friend i think that's an even more relevant point who do you speak to when you break up um you go to your friends and what do your friends know about your relationship only the things you've told them (laughs) and consequently it's more often than not the case that your friends have heard a lot of the negative things about your relationship. But once the relationship comes to an end, who are your, who are your witnesses? They're your friends, and they've only really heard that side of the story. And, and it's in their interest, and indeed your interest, to try and paint as positive a picture about yourself as possible and as negative a picture about your ex-partner as possible. You know, I, I think everyone's done this, but it's, um, it's almost like the one situation in life where absolutely everything that is said about the historical experience will be inaccurate. The sources are so biased. (laughs) The sources are so misinformed um, that to try and, with hindsight, label or define or even describe a relationship, to try and do that with hindsight of any kind is always going to be fundamentally flawed. It's like trying to write a history book where the only source is someone who is intimately involved, uh, has a very personal stake in the the subject matter, um, and has been spinning their narrative to you for many years in advance and there's absolutely no chance in hell that you'll ever speak to the opposite side of the story. Um, it's the single most one-sided and biased historical event. I think it's, it's rare that someone comes out of a relationship and goes, actually, you know what? I was the guilty party there. I should really work on myself. It's very unusual for that to be the case.
0: Do you feel like there's a, there's an imbalance in, in power when it comes to accusations of emotional abuse between the sexes?
5: That's a difficult question. I feel there's, there's. It's definitely impossible to defend yourself against that accusation. I don't know whether it's harder for a male or a female. I couldn't comment because I haven't been on the other side of the fence. But it's definitely true that once labeled, uh, I think it would be the same for physical abuse. But once labeled an uh, an emotional abuser, there's basically nothing you can say or do to defend yourself. Perhaps the difference is that physical abuse is much more serious in the eyes of the law. So there are processes in place to some extent, clearly inadequate ones. But when it comes to emotional abuse, you're just kind of despised, derided, and labelled as a terrible person. I do think it would be very unusual for a male to say to another male, she was emotionally abusive to me or she controlled me. I think you'd kind of be laughed out the room. Whereas it seems very, very not easy. Uh, it's more commonplace for a, a female to be able to say that and to receive quite a sympathetic ear, I think, as is the case with a lot of things, you know, to go to your, your guy mates and say, you wouldn't believe how, um, how bad she made me feel about myself or you wouldn't believe the, the way in which she used to manipulate me into spending all my time with her. It just wouldn't really work in the context of a male conversation, I don't think. I think hopefully it would with, with some more emotionally mature and enlightened males, but I can't think of any time I would have discussed this with a male friend for example, whereas I've had lots of really kind and patient conversations with female friends about it. But having gone through all of that, if you are actually trying to deal with the issue and think about it meaningfully and honestly, then if someone is good and kind and then screws up once, it doesn't suddenly mean that their personality has changed fundamentally. You can be hurt by it, but it doesn't mean you can suddenly label that person as permanently and definitively bad. Still had and still do have um, endless respect for my ex-partner and, and think she's a wonderful person. People fuck up. People cheat. Um, these things happen. It's human nature. It doesn't mean that she was suddenly a fundamentally flawed or bad person throughout our relationship. I think she was a very good person who just made a major fuck up, and it's actually a testament to how good she is that she felt so appalled by it she needed to try and spin this narrative um, that portrayed the situation, I think, quite differently to the reality.
0: I sometimes think, like Judge Judy, we need a Cupid court where love crimes can be tried and settled properly, not in a Jerry Springer kind of way, where it's entertainment, but actually where we'd have a wholesome, omniscient judge with magically recorded evidence to clinically diagnose the emotional abuse that goes on in relationships. Rob highlighted, for me, the tacit defamation that always goes on, whether toxic or not, on both sides of a split or a divorce and how it's impossible to have objectivity. He also raised the point that men can be gaslit too and men might find it harder to talk about being emotionally abused by their female partners. Fortunately, for both Rob and his ex, they did get closure because they had the maturity to resolve, analyse and forgive each other. Most people don't get that closure and I think the reason might be, in the immortal words of Elton John, Sorry seems to be the hardest word. If we are ever complicit in toxic relationships, I think it must point to the masochistic, self destructive side of human beings. This is echoed so perfectly in a poem
1: that Rose McGowan introduced me to. It's called Alcestis on the Poetry Circuit by Erica Young. The best slave does not need to be beaten. She beats herself, not with a leather whip, or with stick or twigs, not with a blackjack or a billy club, but with the fine whip of her own tongue and the subtle beating of her mind against her mind. For who can hate herself half so well as she hates herself? And who can match the finesse of her self-abuse? Years of training are required for this. Twenty years of subtle self-indulgence, self-denial, until the subject thinks herself a queen, and yet a beggar, both at the same time. She must doubt herself in everything but love. She must choose passionately and badly. She must feel lost as a dog without her master. She must refer all moral questions to her mirror. She must fall in love with a Cossack or a poet. She must never go out of the house unless veiled in paint. She must wear tight shoes so she always remembers her bondage she must never forget she is rooted in the ground. Though she is quick to learn and admittedly clever, her natural doubt of herself should make her so weak that she dabbles brilliantly in a half a dozen talents and thus embellishes but does not change our life. If she's an artist and comes close to genius, the very fact of her gift should cause her such pain that she will take her own life rather than best us. And after she dies, we will cry and make her a saint. So the
0: best thing you can probably do if you find yourself in a masochistic, toxic relationship is to get out and encourage that toxic ex to see a therapist. And if they've already done the million hours of therapy and they're still behaving badly, in the words of Rose McGowan,
1: Anything like that is a huge red flag. Run.
0: And that's the end of this episode. The next episode of The Cupid Couch is body hair. My guests tell me how they groom theirs and what they really like on the people they take to bed. And I look into the history of hair removal from the pharaohs to the porn industry. My name is Genevieve Gaunt and you've been listening to The Cupid Couch.